we're going to try something that I did in the first service and we'll try it again and, and see if you can, you can help me out here. I'm going to sing a lyric of a song and then you're going to sing the rest of the lyric. Now the words are going to be up there, so it's going to be delayed. I'll sing the first line, then the words will come up here and y'all sing out, help me out. You know, people are listening online, whether you're singing or not. So here we go. I was looking for love in Looking for love in Go ahead, sing with me. Searching their eyes and looking for traces of what I'm dreaming of, hoping to find a I'll bless the day I discover another heart. Looking for love. Oh. You know when that song came out? 1980, I was a sophomore in high school, and let me tell you that love in 1980, when I was a sophomore, looked very, very different than love in 2019. I've been married, this May will be 28 years, and love looks very, very different now, right? Any of you ever looked for love in the wrong places? All right. Well, I want to read you um, something from C.S. Lewis, and this is from his book, The Four Loves, and here's what he says. God, who needs nothing, loves into existence holy, superfluous creatures, that's you and me, in order that he may love and perfect those superfluous creatures. He creates the universe already foreseeing, I love this line, or should we say seeing, there are no tenses with God, so it's not the future to God, he already sees tomorrow, he sees today, he sees yesterday, he, he's not bound by time. So already seeing that, that um, the buzzing clouds of flies about the cross the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, so talking about Jesus being hung on the cross, the nails driven through the mesial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops, the repeated torture of back and arms as it time after time for breath's sake is hitched up. So what he's saying is on the cross, in order to breathe, Jesus had to push himself up because the weight of the body so constricts, it makes it impossible to breathe or exhale while you're down like this. So he would have to push up on the nails on his feet, push up on the hands through his, through his, uh, on the nails through his hands and he would have to breathe, go back down when he couldn't stand anymore. He would exhale and breathe at the same time. So he says, this is what's going on. If I may dare the biological image, God is a host who deliberately creates his own parasites. All right. Superfluous creatures. Then he's calling us parasites. And here's why he creates his own parasites and causes us to be that we may exploit and take advantage of him. And here's the line, herein is love. This is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. And what does it look like? Here's a picture of what love looks like. He was tortured beyond recognition because the chastisement of God was laid upon him. By his stripes, we are healed. That's a picture of true love. But we all said we're all looking for love in all the wrong places. So let's look at some facts about love. Fact number one, everyone is looking for love. We just sang about it. Um, from the moment you came out of the womb, you were looking for somebody to hold you, to love you, to protect you, to provide for you. And when you got older, you were looking for someone to look you in the eye and go, hey, hey, you're special, right? One of our friends, um, she would always say, she, so they've been married almost four, 40 years. And she'd say to this day, she goes, he just makes my heart go pitter pat. And we'd be watching a movie with him. This was years ago when we first came to town. We'd watch a movie with him. She goes, oh, that just makes my heart go pitter-pat. And she would squeeze up next to him and say, you still make my heart go pitter-pat. Y'all know what I'm talking about, don't you? If you watch a chick flick with your woman, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. 
Makes your heart go pitter-pat. And, and when you blow it, you desperately want somebody to look you in the eye and say, I still love you. I'm still for you. I still forgive you. We all want love. We're desperately looking for love. Most of us are looking for it in the wrong places. Second fact about love. True love can be found if every person that's ever been created has this desire for true love, don't you think if there is a perfect creator, we believe there's a perfect creator who created all those people who need love, wouldn't he provide what they need? The answer is yes. He demonstrated on the cross. We showed you a picture of true love. God demonstrated. So he wants to forgive. He wants to encourage. He wants to affirm. He wants to support. He wants to guide. He wants to hold. He wants to heal. Now, if that's true, all right, go ahead and put that up there, Krista. What all of us are looking for is available, and I want you to say, man, that's a big but. Say it. And that's one T. We're not cussing in church. Aren't there always big buts? I mean, don't you say, oh, well, I would do this, but, man, that's a big but. So say it again. What is the big but? If, if all the love is available, what's the problem? It's the big but. Very few people find God's love. Why is that? There's seven to eight billion people on the planet. Are seven to eight billion people experiencing the love of God? No, they're not. Why? Well, let's, let's, let me illustrate it this way. Go ahead and put that up there if you would, Kristen. Here's, here's Australia. Now, I picked Australia because it's the largest island. Now, there's going to be argument about that because it's a continent, and they'll say, we're not an island, we're a continent, but it's surrounded by water, so just play along with me. This is the largest island in the world. Let's say all 7 to 8 billion people are crammed on this island. Everybody lives there, all right? And let's say that, that they have air, food, water, and shelter, so their basic needs are taken care of. What they don't have is love. So I have one of Janie's um, cups here her coffee cup. I did not buy this for her. This uh, has a heart on this side and this side says, love you so much. You would think I had gotten this for her. I don't know where it came from, but I just borrowed it because this represents the love that each of those seven to 8 billion people need. It represents your love. It's empty right now. Everything that's available, the, the love of God is the, is the water, the ocean that surrounds that island. It's available to everybody, but not everybody's being filled up with that love. If you start to look into their lives, what you'll see is there's anxiety in here. There's rejection, there's feelings of worthlessness, whatever it is, they're filling their lives up with something that is not the love of God. All the love they need to overcome their hurts, their habits, and their hangups is in that ocean surrounding Australia, but they're not experiencing it. Why? Well, there's at least three reasons why. First reason, they don't know it exists. If all seven to eight billion people are on that island, some of them are living in the desert, some of them are, are hundreds of miles away from the ocean of God's love, they don't even know it's out there. Um, they don't know, they don't have love because they're not aware the ocean exists. There's people who've never seen the ocean. How can they experience the love of the ocean if they don't know it exists? The Bible says it this way in Romans 10, 14. This, I didn't put this in, this was a late edition. Or did I put that in? Anyway. Uh, but how can they t call on him to save them unless they believe in him? Talking about God. How can they believe in God if they've never heard about God? And how can they hear about God unless someone tells them they've never heard so they're not experiencing the love of God? Second reason people are not experiencing. They know about love, but they're not experiencing it. It's like people who said, yeah, there's an ocean. I've seen it, but I've never been in it. I've never jumped in. So here's Australia again. So there's plenty of ocean all the way around, but here's a picture of the ocean, right? So it's, it's like they walk up to the beach and they say, yep, there's an ocean right there. It's good. And, and you say to them, jump in. Everything you know, need to fill up your love capacity is right here. Jump in. They're like, no, nah, I'm more of a watcher. 
I'm not a doer. You experience the love of Christ. You be filled up with God's love. I'm just going to sit back here and watch. So, so they know it's there, but they've not experienced it. And then there's a third reason. And the third reason is they've experienced it once, but they don't know how to jump in daily. This would be like when, when I used to take teenagers to youth camp. And they would get on this spiritual high and then they'd come back and they would fall on their face and spiritually and get far from God and they'd go back to camp. And, and it could be Trace Dias, it could be VN, whatever, that, that you go and you experience this incredible high and you're like, man, there is the love of God. And then you come back and you don't know how to be filled up on a daily basis. We need to be filled up on a daily basis. See, the, the scripture says in Psalm 37, 4, taste and see that the Lord is good. Everybody who tastes, and they, they will say, yes, God is good. But in the disciples' prayer, it also says, give us this day our daily bread to sustain us. You need to know how to be filled up daily. Henry Nouwen is a, uh, is a writer. He's written several books. One of them is called The Spirit of the Disciplines. Here's what he says. Over the years, I've come to realize that the greatest trap in our life is not success, popularity, or power, but self-rejection. Success, popularity, and power can indeed present a great temptation, but their seductive quality often comes from the way they are part of a much larger temptation to self-rejection. When we come to believe that in the voices that call us worthless and unlovable, success, popularity, and power are easily perceived as attractive solutions. So here's what he's saying. You know you have this capacity to be loved, but what you do is you, you take this little eyedropper, one little dot, and you go over here. Oh, here's success. I'm going to put that in there. Man, I'm going to drink that success. Mm. Has one drop of coffee ever satisfied you? No. Come on. We need buckets of coffee, right? Or you say power or popularity, whatever it is, we try to fill that up. And this is what billions of people around the world are doing is they're trying to live on that one little drop, and it's not enough. The love of God is out there and it's, it's available. He says the real trap, however, is self-rejection. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that God calls us what? Beloved or you know, beloved, beloved, if you're going to do the King James, beloved. Being beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. Most people don't know they're, they're beloved by the creator. And if I can't experience God's love, then, then we'll, put, we'll put human love as, a, as, a, as the next best thing. And we'll get one drop and it never will be enough. See, when, when I try to be filled up by my wife, by my kids, by the church, you people keep letting me down. And I keep letting you down, right? Because I wasn't designed to be filled up. This was not designed to be filled up by Janie Washburn or my children or New Life Community Church. I was designed for something much bigger than that. Janie was designed for something much bigger, more powerful, more loving than Doug Washburn. We've got to be careful trying to fill the love of Christ with an eyedropper. See, God wants us to stop accepting cheap substitutes and everything other than the love of God is a cheap substitute. Here's what John tells us in 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. You want to know what that word lavished means? When Waylon, my grandson, was one year old, he had three sets of grandparents, two sets of great-grandparents, at least seven niece, uh, aunts and uncles, and then all of these people from the apartment complexes. So many people we couldn't fit in an apartment. We had to get one of their little meeting rooms, and then we lavished that boy with so many presents, he didn't even know where to look. That's what it means. God has lavished on you his love, but some of you don't even know it exists. 
And he says that we should be called children of God, and that's what we are. So let's have a working definition of God's love today. Here it is. God's love is, is his holy disposition towards all that he has created that compels him to express two things. We're going to love the first one. We're not going to like the second one. It compels him to express unconditional affection. We like that one. And selective correction. We don't like that one. To provide the highest and best quality of existence both now and forever for the objects of his love. Unconditional love. God wants to hug you all the time. If you have children or grandchildren, you know how it feels to hug them, to have them hug you back, to tuck them in, to have them say, Mommy, I love you. Daddy, I love you. God's love for you is like that. And God wants to to pour affection on you every second of every day. But God's love is also holy and will cause him to, to bring about selective correction in your life if you're not living for him. When my thoughts, my, my life, my, my attitudes, my finances, my relationships are jacked up and moving me towards unhealthy things, God will step in. And the Bible says in, he, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 and following, if God doesn't discipline you, you're not a child of God because he disciplines everybody he loves. When I veer off course, I hear this voice Say to me, Douglas, when I get onto myself, I do something dumb. Douglas, you know, that's my, that's, I guess that's a cuss word. <laughs> Douglas, um, what are you doing? And I hear this voice saying to me, you're off course and you need some discipline. But God's saying to me, I'm going to watch you. And, and as you go off course, if you go on this path, I may put up a sign and go, yo, dude, that way. And if you keep going that way, I may see, have another sign saying, hey, dork, Douglas, that way. If you don't listen to that sign or don't see that sign, I may send somebody across your path, whether it's a pastor, whether it's a friend, whether it's a relative that says, yo, dude, you are on the wrong path. And if you don't listen to that, then you're going to get a smack. And if that doesn't correct you, then God says, you're in for a world of hurt that may cost your life because the scripture clearly says, There is a sin that leads to death. And I know in my, I have seen it where I believe God took someone out because they were living in such a way that they were disgracing the name of God and they were causing people around them to walk away from God. God took their life. And you don't want that. God says, I will correct you. I'm not going to do it all at once. It will be selective, but it will be for your best. Now, when you hear about the love of God, you can say, man, that sounds so good. I'm going to stand way back here. The ocean's over there. I'm going to stand way back here. And the only way I'm ever going to experience the love of God is if the tsunami brings the wave up and fills up my cup. Good luck with that. Or you can choose to jump in, to dive in, and have more love than you've ever needed, not only to sustain you today, but to fill you up tomorrow. And by the way, you don't have a, you don't have a bank account of God's love. Where you, where you store it up over here, and I don't need it right now, but I'm going to store it and come back. And, you got to go get it daily. It's our daily bread. Now, when you get to the New Testament, the writers actually didn't have a word for God's love. And so they made up a word called agape in Greek, and they put it in the New Testament to describe God's love so that it would, they would differentiate from all the loves that the Greeks used. So the New Testament was written in Greek. And so they had a, a, a word called phileo, which is brotherly love. I love Thatcher with but brotherly love, right? And they said, we want to differentiate from that. And then there's one called eros, which is, which is sexual love or, or love between a husband and a wife. And they said, we sure don't want God's love to be compared to that. We're going to make up this new love word called agape, which is all encompassing. It's like the, it's like the ocean. 
And so here's what, here's what it says in Ephesians 3, 18 and 19 about that agape love. May you have the power to understand as all God's people should. Here it is, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is his agape love. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. So when you're standing on the ocean, let's say we're standing on the beach in Australia, and we can, compre- we can think about, okay, this same ocean touches the United States and Hawaii and Alaska and Russia and, and all of these other places, but can you possibly comprehend how big, how wide, how deep all the things that are in that ocean when you're standing in one spot in Australia? No, he's saying you can't fully comprehend it, but you can experience it. And and when you do, look what happens. Then you will be made complete. You will never be complete when you're looking for people's love or, or success or power or prestige. You will never be sustained in that. <laughs> and he says, then you'll be made complete and with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. This is how much you need. And my wife has, I love my wife more today than I did um, 28 years ago, because of the ups and downs that we've been through, I love her more, but her love was never designed to fill me up. Her love is the icing on the cake. It's not the cake. How do we know God loves us? Let's run through this real quick. First of all, he created us. God created you. He created me. Here's what it says in Psalm 139. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. David wrote that in the Psalms. God included it in the word of God because he wanted the best-selling book of all time to, to communicate to you and me or anybody that would read it that I, I was knit just like David was knit. I was knit together in my, my mother's womb at the moment of conception that's when the creator began to put you together everything that's what the scripture teaches how else do we know God loves us his kindness number two now we may wonder whether God really loves us it may be difficult for us to accept that but isn't it true there's some people that we say how can God love them Right? Don't you have a list? God, I can't love them. How, how could, God, how could you love them? But he does. But not only does he love them, look what Jesus says to us in Matthew 5, 44. Jesus speaking, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. God is good to everyone because if he was only good to good people, there'd be zero people in heaven because the Bible says none of us is righteous. All of our deeds are like filthy rags. None of us would be there. And so when there's Christians that fall in love, there's also non-Christians that fall in love. Non-Christians have great weddings, have babies, they, have, they become scientists, they're artists, they're, they have this creative DNA given to them by God. They experience joys in life, they experience sorrows in life. Why is it that non-Christians and, and, and Christians alike, God is kind to all of them? Well, Paul tells us in Acts 17. From one man, talking about Adam, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Here's why. God did this so that men would seek him. God is kind to people so that God will seek him. It's okay. That's, that's our friend, and she's, she's having a hard time, but it's all right. All right? So God, God is kind to everyone so that maybe someone will seek him. He's trying to get your attention. You know, he's got, the, he's got the, the flares out saying, I'm over here. I'm being kind to you. And then look, 
maybe they'll reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each of us. God is kind to everyone because he wants all of us to repent. Number three, how do we know God loves us? He pursues us literally. You might want to write that down literally because I'm going to show you. Luke 19, 10. For the son of man, and this is Jesus' favorite term from himself, for himself. It goes back to the book of Daniel. In Daniel, it was, it was a prophetic thing talking about the Messiah would be like a son of man. So Jesus always called himself the son of man. For the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. So I want you to think about this. In John chapter four, Jesus comes across a woman that we call the woman at the well. She was Samaritan and there were all kinds of these, these um, uh, taboos, cultural taboos where a, a Jewish rabbi would never speak to a woman that wasn't related to him, certainly not in public and certainly not to a Samaritan woman. So he's hanging out at the well and they begin to talk and he says something to her. He says, um, I've got living water for you. So he's saying, you know, that, that need that you have, I've got something that can fill it up. I've got it for you right now, not when you get your act together. And when they begin talking about worship and all this stuff, and Jesus says this to her, the father talking about God is seeking. And that word seeking literally means pursuing. He's chasing people who will do what? Who worship him in spirit and in truth. See, Jesus left the glory of heaven. He left the, the praise of all of the angelic beings. He came and he was born through, the, through a womb of his mother. He was placed in a feeding trough. He lived in a, in a dirty, filthy place compared to where he came from. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross and he was killed by the people he came to pursue. That's pretty amazing. If you want to know what God's like, you look at how he treated this woman who had five husbands. Now she was shacking up with the sixth who was not her husband because she was desperately hoping maybe this guy will finally be the one that makes me feel loved. And that's how Jesus treated her. So here's what Jesus said to her in, in essence. This is what he said. I would love to give you some living water and to forgive you. You were looking to fill the hole in your heart with men and you found that five couldn't do it and the one you're with now, he's not gonna do it either. Now, here's what Jesus says to you about your love needs. You were looking for significance and you were looking for security and you were looking to be whole. What you didn't know, Jesus is saying, is you're looking for me. But you just couldn't see me and you didn't know about me and I want you to know I have a free gift for you that is available right now. Not if you do something, not when you do something, it's available. It's an ocean of his love. How high, how deep, how wide, how long is that love? And it's available just because he loves you. You're the object of his affection and he wants to fill you up. You remember your first crush? When I wrote this out, I typed out that my first girlfriend was in kindergarten. Her name was Stacy Spector. And then I remembered that I actually, my first girlfriend was Alicia Armstrong, who was my pastor's uh, daughter, we were crowned king and queen of, of the very first vacation Bible school I went to. I've got pictures with my robe and my little, my little crown and her little crown and she was cute, you know. But my first kiss actually came in kindergarten when I was five years old, Stacy Spector. We were on the back porch and she had a, a, a sister who was quite a bit older than us. I can't remember if she's 11, 12, 13, but she goes, hey, Doug, you like my sister? I'm like, yeah. She's blonde hair, blue eyes, cute girl. And I said, yeah, I like her. And she goes, if you like her, kiss her. We were sitting in the chair together and I Okay, so I kissed her. Now, I remember nothing about the kiss. There was nothing there. What I remember is I liked it when girls liked me, all right? I remember that. Anybody else? Nobody? I liked it, and I began, I began to try to fill my life with significance by whoever I was going out with. 
And the, the interesting thing is, Janie and I have talked about this many times. She did the same thing. She wanted, and she, and we were so lonely sometimes that we would go out with people that we knew we weren't going to marry because we were lonely. We were desperately looking for love and acceptance. And it wasn't until both of us said to God, God, we don't want to do life our way. We want to be filled only by you. It was at that point, she did it in, in um, Huntsville and I did it in Austin, Texas. After that is when God brought us together. And, and our love is stronger today, not because we're filling each other up, but because we're being filled with God first. And then out of the overflow, I can love her. She can love me through anything. And it's the way God designed us. Do you remember, ladies, how it felt to have someone pursue you? Is that cool? The God of the universe who created you has, is pursuing you, has been pursuing you. You remember when, when you were cho- chosen for a team? Maybe you didn't even, you, maybe you sucked at some sport, but your best friend was the captain and they chose you and you're like, yeah. The God of the universe has chosen you to be on his team. You were the object of his love before you even knew his name. He's been pursuing you. Number four, his discipline. How do we know his, he loves us because he disciplines us. Hebrews 12, six said, the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a child. Punish literally means to correct or correction for a desired result. He's not going to let you keep going down that path. My, in my devotional, I, I go through a book. Basically it's a book for every book of the Bible in my devotional. I'm in, in, uh, I read Psalm 51 this morning over and over. It says, God will not let his children sin successfully. Yes, it may feel like success at first, but God's going to get you your attention if you're his child. Look what it says in Psalm 68, 5 and 6. Father to the fatherless, defender of widows, this is God whose dwelling is holy. God places the lonely in families. He sets the prisoners free and gives them joy, but he makes the rebellious, makes the rebellious live in sun-scorched land. Does that sound like fun? Sounds like discipline to me. How else do we know God loves us? Number five, his Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Look what he says about the Holy Spirit in Romans 5, 5b. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So the Bible says the moment that you accept God's love, he pours his love into you. He pours his Holy Spirit into you. And if you read Ephesians chapter one, you'll find out here's the things that the gifts that the Spirit gives you. First of all, he's sealed. You're sealed with the Spirit. So a, a, a signet ring sealed and identified this person belongs to the king. So when you have the Holy Spirit, you belong to the king. And it's, it's the seal recognizing that. Adopted into God's family, he calls you his child. Baptized into the fellowship of believers. Given a spiritual gift. Given an inheritance in heaven. All of those things are available to the people who figure out God's love is so great that he's poured those things out. One of the ways he shows us is through his Holy Spirit. And of course, the, the, the greatest way is through his son. How do we know God loves us is through his son. You've heard of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Well, most, most people don't know 1 John 3.16, which says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. You see, an object's value is determined, always determined by the price paid for it. To God, your life was worth the death of his son. So if you want to experience the love of God, you have to, you have to accept it and say, that's what I want, not, not a cheap substitute. And then to experience it daily, you have to obey God. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. 
And I want to read you something from Corey Ten Boom in her book, um, The Hiding Place. We talked about her several weeks ago about how she experienced God's love in a way she did not expect. She says, it was in a, in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947 and I'd come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People would stand up in silence. In silence, they would collect their coats, and in silence, they would leave the room. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform with a visored cap and a skull and crossbones on it. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor and the shame of walking naked past this man that's walking down the aisle in front of her, right? So at the concentration camp, they would make them throw all of their clothes in the middle and they would shame them by walking them in front of the the guards. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one of a thousand women? but I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I'd been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I who sins it every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Check this out. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to also return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what their physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. Forgive, learn how to live, become bitter, become an invalid. And I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much, but you supply the feeling. 
And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our hands, And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. I forgive you. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Would you bow your heads for a moment? I want you to think about whether you've ever accepted the love of Christ, whether you've been trying to fill your life with things that um, could never satisfy. And I want you to think about what it is that God wants you to obey today. Father, would you make yourself real to us in this moment? And would you change us from the inside out? Our hearts are desperately wicked, the scripture says. Who can understand them? But you've said you will give us new hearts You'll take out the heart of stone. You'll give us a heart of flesh and you will be our God. And so we pray that today. In Jesus' name, amen.